0: Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom.
1: We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Today's episode is sponsored by the Nurtured Foundations online course. The Nurtured Foundations course is a podcast style course to teach parents how to start solids with their baby. Are you a parent with a child from 0 to 24 months? Well, then this online course is for you. This is a comprehensive course that empowers parents to start solid foods in a confident and safe way and raise adventurous and healthy eaters from the start. We cover topics such as when to start solids, the most nutrient-dense foods to feed your babies, recipes, troubleshooting, how to prevent picky eating, and so much more. If you want information on this course, go to nourishthelittles.com and click on the link Nurtured Foundations Online Course. You can also find a link to the Nurtured Foundations Online Course on my Instagram bio. Click on the link and look for Nurtured Foundations Online Course. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. I am Christine from Nourish the Littles, and I'm joined by my co host, Corey from For Nutrients' Sake. And if you guys have been following us for a while, you know that we absolutely love talking about ancestral food and ways to live more holistically. And herbalism is a particular brand of crunchy that both Corey and I are fascinated with, but not particularly familiar with. And so we wanted to learn more about herbalism and how herbs can be used as medicine. And so for this gu- for this reason, we decided to bring along today's guest, who is Lisa Mays. Did I say that correct, Lisa?
2: Lisa Maze.
1: Oh, never mind. <laughs> Lisa Maze. There she goes, correcting me right off the bat. Lisa is a holistic nutritionist, herbalist and apparent homesteading on the traditional lands of the Abenaki people in Vermont. Lisa emigrated to the States from Italy as a teen and is passionate about food sovereignty, ancestral healing, and intuitive eating. Lisa's book, The Culinary Pharmacy, guides readers to create personal nutrition plans through understanding their constitution and using their intuition. Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, Lisa.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Wait a we break I should have asked that before we
1: I told started. And the funny thing is I thought I was like, oh, don't forget to ask how to say her name. And of course, I forgot. And I should have
2: mentioned it because it's a weird one. And in Italian, a single S sounds like a Z. So of course, right. it's like the Tower of Pisa, but my name looks like Lisa Mace, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: So Pisa, Lisa, I can remember this. Got it. it.
0: That's hilarious. Um, Okay. So like Christine said, neither one of us have a lot of um, knowledge or experience with herbalism. So usually we start our episodes with a question that is kind of like an icebreaker. And um, it usually pertains to the episode. We were having a little bit of trouble coming up with one this time because we're just – both kind of very green on this subject and so we're going to ask this question and it might sound a little silly to you because um you obviously have knowledge on this but just go with the flow on here so um our question is and we'll round table it how much do you know about herbalism i'll go first i know almost nothing
1: Okay, my turn. Um, I know that you use herbs to make medicine.
0: (laughs) Cool. Okay. Now, Lisa, it's your turn. You get to tell us all the things you know.
2: (laughs) So my experience with herbalism really started as a kid in Italy with my grandmother um, and my cousins, wild harvesting, foraging in the woods, and making different herbal preparations. Um, It was more, you know, quote unquote, normal for me to think about taking elderberry syrup in my water every day throughout the fall and winter, than it was to think about going to the doctor to get a medicine, right? Um, So really, the blessing of being raised in kind of an intact cultural tradition is that I was truly steeped in the knowledge of How plants are, you know, not only part of our foodscape, but also part of our relationship with the environment and with the changing seasons and how, yes, of course, there are herbs to help heal conditions and herbs, just like food, are part of preventative care. So I've been making my own tinctures and infusions and decoctions and salves, um, as for as long as I can remember, for my whole life.
1: Wow. What part of Italy did you grow up in, out of curiosity?
2: We're from the Dolomites, um, so very far north in one of Italy's five independent provinces that prior to World War I were part of the Habsburg Empire. Um, my fami- family is ethnically half Romani, um, originally likely from Turkey, and half French. So the town that I'm from, Giustino, is pretty much dominated by people with the last name Maze. although technically we're not related.
1: (laughs) It's so interesting. Out of curiosity, have you read the book Chewing the Fat?
2: Yes, I have.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read that one yet, but Christine loves it. Oh
1: my goodness. It is one of the best books that's out there. Um, I, I I would say it's, I mean, I put it on the same level as Nutrition and Physical Degeneration as far as the information that you learn from these Italian women. Yes. Oh, cool. And uh, it's just, yeah, and it's wonderfully translated. Um, it's so good. Anyway.
2: Absolutely. I love that you know that book.
1: Should we get started? I mean, I, 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 just, I just want you to keep talking. I'm so intrigued now. I want to hear more. <laughs>
0: <gasps> okay, wait. So, um you immigrated. How old were you when you immigrated? 12. Oh, 12. Okay. So, you've been in the US for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um and um how have you like I mean, you brought that with you, kind of that just ingrained knowledge, right? And in the US were you kind of or your or I guess your parents maybe were like kind of surprised by how the system is different, you know, um, and then how did you get back to, um, that herbalism, um, mindset?
2: Yes. So coming to the States was massive culture shock and (laughs) I, it, you know, really sheds light on. What all of these different immigrants have gone through um, for many generations, I was not, you know, running away from persecution or oppression, right? I was coming for education. Um, and it's so very different to be in a different climate with a different landscape and different cultural understandings. And then what felt to me like this um kind of like like plastic blanket of um confusion over the food shed and the food systems right like I didn't grow up with grocery stores although there are grocery stores in Italy now and so I went into a grocery store I remember this so clearly and I'm looking at my mom and I'm like where's the food hmm Right. And it's all, you know, everything's wrapped in plastic and styrofoam and boxes and cans. And this was very strange and unfamiliar to me. And so I started really from the outset inviting the friends that I made in my school over to my house to be like, okay, this is how you make pasta. Right. So we're going to do this, you know, with the eggs and I'm going to show you and now we're going to go get the basil because, of course, we immediately started growing food in our yard. It was very confusing to see, you know, like cut grass and a lot of um, beautiful plants in people's yards, but that weren't edible. Right. Mm -hmm. Of course, I love plants for their beauty. Absolutely. And many edible plants are also beautiful. So I really started becoming kind of a food sovereignty activist from the moment I got to the States. And I spent quite a bit of time traveling before settling in Vermont, really looking for where are the bones and the roots of this place called the United States, right? And I landed truly in um, the Four Corners area, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah area, really understanding who the indigenous folks are in this country and what was here before settlement and colonialism, right? And that helped me actually feel a little more settled in my body and a little bit more um, kind of clear on needing to find a place to live in the States that reflected more of not only the cultural values of how I grew up with whole foods and herbs, but also the landscape and the environment and the plant friends with which I grew up, right? And that's truly why I ended up here on the ancestral lands of the Abenaki in Vermont, because walking through the woods, I'm seeing the mushrooms that I grew up with. and the berries and um, the wild edible plants and medicinal plants as well. And there is this feeling of home and how home can transcend location in some ways, right? So I really have carried that thread through since coming to the States.
1: Yeah, I can definitely imagine it was a huge culture shock. Um, It's it's sometimes it's embarrassing as an American when (laughs) other and you know, when other people come to our country and they see the food that we have offered here and also just like what we've done to our land and things like that. And it's like, well, this is the country that everyone supposedly wants to emulate. And in reality, I don't want to bash America, but <laughs> we, you know, there's a lot of things that modern industrialized America has unfortunately gotten wrong. Um, but I'm, Oh, what were you going to say?
0: I, oh, I'm just going to add a little tiny bit there. Cause I do think that there is some really beautiful food cultures in the United States and, oh. um, we should not discount that. This is true. Absolutely.
1: This is very true. Yeah. And,
0: what we have allowed to happen through industrialization is very sad. And, and sh- we should definitely look at that hard. Um, but, you know, there are trade-offs. So
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. anyway, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm really, really curious. I want you, I don't want, I don't want to take up too much time talking about this, but I'm intrigued about the Abenaki people. And what have you learned about the land that you're living on? Yeah. Maybe share a little bit of that, if you don't mind.
2: Absolutely. I'd be happy to. So, yes, these are the ancestral lands of the Abenaki or um, sort of more correct pronunciation sounds a little more like Alnobak um, in the Abenaki language. Um, And Abenaki folks, from what I've learned, um, have a really incredible system of cultivation of food and harvesting of food um, that's in alignment with the Seven Sisters, which is the constellation of the Pleiades. So each one of those seven stars in that constellation gets brighter at a slightly different time in the spring, and that's the time to sow the different crops. And in the fall, each one of the stars you know, dims to some extent at a slightly different time, and that is the time to harvest these crops. I've had the great blessing of working with the Seeds of Renewal project, which is an Abenaki project to reclaim all of their indigenous seeds and eventually create an indigenous-only seed bank. Oh, that's cool. Wow. Yes. And it's happening throughout the Northeast or what folks here call, indigenous folks call the Eastern Woodlands. Um, And it's a really special project and incredible to witness, you know, the reclaiming of the seeds and growing out um, the pumpkins that are grown actually for their seeds and not their flesh because they're so high in anti-inflammatory fatty acids and protein and then of course the Jerusalem artichokes and the husk cherries and the sunflower seeds and the beans and the corn um, and then the pumpkins right those are the seven sisters um, and the Abenaki um, have gone through a really unique struggle um, because of a eugenics movement that happened in this state to try to actually totally erase their presence um, so there's a feeling of needing to cultivate safety around actually being able to be Abenaki. Um, and that's and that's happening more and more. And I think, you know, for all of us who live in the United States, the more we can name and identify the ancestral lands and who originally inhabited them everywhere the more we hopefully create a culture of safety and sovereignty and acceptance around these lands and the people who are still very much with us.
1: What part of Vermont is this?
2: Central. Okay. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. in the Abenaki language, it's called Indakina, which means the homeland
1: is 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 Middlebury a city in Vermont? It in is. Name? It is yes.
2: where I went to college.
1: Okay, that's where I've been. I've been to Middlebury in Vermont to visit a friend that was there for college.
2: <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, Middlebury is beautiful. Now I live yeah. in Montpelier, which is about an hour and fifteen minutes okay. away. It's the state capital. Right. Mm-hmm. The other mm-hmm. side of the eastern side of the Green Mountains.
1: Okay. I mean, I was blown away when I, I've only, yeah, only been there once and I was totally blown away by it.
2: Yes. So and speaking beautiful. Beautiful yeah. food traditions, right? Folks here are really trying with cultural revivalism and small scale farming and um, supporting, right? These kind of more traditional cultural values and keeping them alive.
0: Vermont's got a lot of really cool food sovereignty and like um, local food laws, Definitely. That a lot of other states could could gain <laughs> some good ideas from.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. yeah.
0: okay, so i I would really love to get into herbalism because I know we have a kind of a short time today. Um, so uh, in today, you know what we've got going on today, we know we have depleted soils, we know we have, toxins that are you know in the air and we've got all of this kind of radiation going around the air and we've got all sorts of things are are making it harder to grow nutritious food um and that's not even mentioning glyphosate and all of those things and and herbicides and um insecticides and gmos and blah 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 blah. there's like you know we could just fall down this huge rabbit hole (laughs) but um with all of that, you know, to take in to, um, the conversation and with the increasing difficulty in finding land with as much as it's costing and not living seasonally and all of this stuff, do you still think that it is possible to use food as medicine?
2: Yes, I really do. And It's true. Things are changing so quickly, right? To think that, you know, when I was growing up 30, 40 years ago, um, there was such a different opportunity around whole local food from nutrient-rich soils than there is now. And I think, you know, I like to say for every processed food, there's a fad diet to try to rebalance. Um, I also feel like You know, for every processed food, for every GMO food and pesticide, there's also a farmer who is working as hard as they can to be in integrity with the land, with the soil, and with what the indigenous crops are, and even the wild crops are on land. And truly, it's our responsibility as eaters of food to seek out those folks, to encourage them to get glyphosate testing um, if that's available to them, right? To even create some community supported agriculture funding to do that kind of testing because glyphosate's in the rain, right? We can't get away from it, unfortunately. And there are ways to mitigate the impacts of that. Um, And if you're really curious about how to get glyphosate out, I certainly think about this a ton because of my little people Um, you can look at the Detox Project website and they'll give you a lot of resources for companies that test their food for glyphosate. Um, And so that's a long way of saying that I think we have to truly spend a lot more time, energy, and resources wrapping our awareness around what it actually takes to have food and herbs be our medicine, right? It's not just going to the grocery store or going to the apothecary and grabbing things, right? There has to be a deeper inquiry into what sources are and what soil is like um, and what growing conditions have been like. So yes, it's possible. And we're being asked to do a lot more work.
0: Yeah. So possible does not mean easy. Correct.
2: Correct. And yeah. the world we live in, life in the apocalypse.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's well put. Um, what are some foods that you would consider medicinal?
2: Such a great question. And I think, you know, from a foundational perspective, we're all bio-individuals, right? Like I talk about in my book, we all have an inborn constitution with which we come into the world. And then We have the causes and conditions of our lives and our environment that impact that constitution, right? Another way of saying that is genetics and epigenetics. Um, So different foods will feel medicinal or not at different moments. And that's going to look different for a lot of people. Um, That being said, some foods that I tend to support the growth of in our gardens that feel really helpful over the years are garlic. Um, You know, so many things to be said about garlic, including its antimicrobial properties, including its aphrodisiac properties, um, including its really potent capacity to Keep away what needs to be kept away um, and be kind of a boundary creator in a certain guild of plants. Um, whether that's pests or deer, garlic has this incredible capacity to communicate with the environment and provide us with nourishment and medicine. Um, so I think garlic is a good example. Some people don't digest garlic very well. That's okay. Okay. It's cousin, the leek, is perhaps easier to digest. Um, hmm. So I think the whole allium family has a lot going for it. Um, and then I really also think about nutrient density with food in terms of medicine, right? Um, and in that, you know, I kind of go towards fats and proteins, right? We truly need those um for energy production, right? And for longevity, for all of these different systems um, that create the intricate complexity of who we are. So whether you are a lover of um, pumpkin seeds or um, grass-fed butter or beef liver, right? Those nutrient-dense foods are so important because a little goes a long way and the body needs, needs what it needs. It needs vitamins and minerals that are gonna help it thrive. Um, and it doesn't need tons of them, but the more we can focus on having really high quality and those nutrient dense proteins and fats in our eating, I think the more we can all thrive again with some customization um, and then Another food that I grew up, again, foraging and wild harvesting that I believe to be truly medicinal, although perhaps not for everyone, is mushrooms. Um, Again, similarly to garlic, right, there's this intricate level of communication um, between the mushroom mycelial networks underground and the rest of the environment. And mushrooms are actually predictors of what is to come in the environment, which is incredible because when we eat them, it helps our immune system to actually modulate the effects of something unknown that comes, whether it's you know a climate stressor like a flood or a fire, or whether it's a novel virus like the coronavirus. Um, the mushrooms are there saying, okay, immune system, we're helping you um predict how to respond and really be prepared for resilience if there's such a thing
0: so this is the idea that these are ongoing things obviously these are not like a i'm sick i need to eat this you know i mean that could be the case as well but this is this is the the talk you know i guess we talk about this a lot this is you don't just eat chicken noodle soup when you feel sick. You eat chicken noodle soup once a week, so that your body is not gonna get as sick. Hopefully, um, this is the same sort of conversation. Like if you're continually eating these things and you're continually giving your body these um, medicines, uh, kind of it's almost like microdosing. You know, you're you're continually ge- feeding yourself these things. Then your your body is then able to fight off those illnesses better when those come along.
2: Correct, it's really this concept of prevention, right? Which we Mm -hmm. were talking about before. And that's, you know, from the Latin, it means before the wind, right? And in Chinese medicine, we think of illness as often a disruption in the wind patterns of our body, right, wind gets in and there's disruption. So if we can act before the wind, by nourishing ourselves on a deep level and staying in harmony with our environment. Yeah. Those illnesses will be teachers to us um, about what's needed, right. To grow and transform. And they won't be debilitating. It's this kind of concept that we talk about in herbalism of something that's tonic versus something that's therapeutic, right? Like I wouldn't want to take a root, route, um, which is a very, immune system tonic herb when I'm sick, right? I would want to take something that feels more therapeutic in the moment to help the immune system do its work of processing the illness. However, everything that I've taken tonically up until that moment, like the good proteins and fats, the mushrooms, the garlic, so many other foods, as you said, are helping me deal with that moment of disruption which is illness.
1: This is fascinating. I, I have so many questions in my head. <laughs> um, first of all, I love mushrooms, um, <laughs> but I don't know anything about foraging mushrooms. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering, do we go down that rabbit hole
0: or uh, my other... One... Maybe we can come back because I, I think we're going to run out of time if we... If we... Diverge into foraging. Perhaps Lisa could come back
2: and
1: talk to us about foraging mushrooms on another episode. Okay, find your local
2: forager. I bet there's one in your community. Ask your farmers.
1: Okay, that's I. So right. Okay, that's the next question. Um, But we, Corey, we might have to have her back on actually because we're not going to have enough time to go through all of our questions. But out of curiosity, there supposedly. Uh, when you have something like a fungal, uh, problem or a mold problem, um, any illness like that, it is recommended to avoid things like mushrooms. Do you have any thoughts on that? Just out of curiosity.
0: Wait, can I ask? Cause that's really interesting with the homeopathic idea of like, uh, heals like, right? Correct. Is that how you say it? Like, she's yeah. like,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. So now, I'm, okay, go. I'm super interested. Yeah.
2: <laughs> right. And so, correct. In homeopathy, there is this concept that, um, like, to heal a bee sting, I want to take bee venom, right? Mm-hmm. To basically help the body understand what that is in a way that's non triggering and to help normalize it, essentially, right? Um, it's kind of like, the OG vaccine, like the real deal, as opposed to the pharmaceutical ones. Um, And with that, you know, mushrooms, again, have this prescience, this like ability to essentially predict the future. um, And they have these compounds in them called beta-glucans, which are incredibly immune modulating and... I wouldn't necessarily avoid mushrooms with a fungal infection or with molds. Um, I would be more thoughtful about which mushrooms I'm using relative to which mold or fungal condition I have going on. Right. Because certain mushrooms are great at talking with other mushrooms, essentially, right? Like Aspergillus arisae that grows on, um, Grains and beans that are not well harvested and not well stored can cause long-term mold issues in the people who then eat those foods. Coffee also has this issue. Chocolate, it's pretty pervasive, right? But also a strain of that aspergillus is what's used to ferment tofu into tempeh. So it's all about this body conversation and how the body perceives something that it's taking in. And I actually believe that if we're eating mushrooms or you know using a mushroom tincture or putting dried mushrooms into our stock when we're making broth, that if and when we do encounter those other funguses and molds that could be considered pathogenic, the body says, oh, I see you. I see your beta-glucans. You're cool. I'm going to just kind of like gently usher you out as opposed to saying, wow, I'm really confused by this. I don't know what this is. I haven't ever had any exposure to this. I'm going to cause, you know, I'm going to have a big tantrum about this in my body. hmm Yeah, that's fascinating. I know. So I think and it's it was- all about how you know, how you relate to those particular foods.
1: Okay. And you said something about putting dried mushrooms in your broth. That's I I admit, I've never done that before. I'd love to hear more about that. And if you don't have, let's say you're someone who's new to this, and you don't have access to foraging mushrooms, or you only have access to grocery store mushrooms. Um, Yeah, what would someone like that do?
2: Yes. So go for shiitakes. If you're buying fresh mushrooms, those are going to be the most nutrient dense. Um, the others, the like baby Bella portabella cremini even tend to be grown in the dark and mushrooms actually need a little bit of indirect light, um, to develop all of their nutrients. So those mushrooms just don't have a ton going on for them. Right. So if you're in the store, you see a shiitake, that's an option Um, and a wonderful thing to, yes, of course, you know, saute with onions and butter and enjoy over your steak or mixed into a grain. Um, And if you're not feeling like you can handle that mushroomy texture, yeah, chop up those shiitakes. (laughs) Um, don't wash them because you don't want to flood them with water. They're like little sponges. Brush off any dirt, chop them up, and throw them in your stock. And then you can, you know, skim them out and compost them.
0: I will say that there are all sorts of things that I add to my bone broth that I don't enjoy eating. Correct. Um, like organ meats and. I haven't done mushrooms, but maybe I should try this because there's literally nobody in my house that likes mushrooms. So, <laughs> but, um, my friend made meatballs one time that she put mushrooms into and we all loved them. So, you know, maybe we should, we should be trying that a little bit more. Yeah, I don't know what it
1: says about me that I keep, I keep wanting to continue this mushroom conversation. I know.
0: But- no, so many other things to talk about, Christine. You're right, you're right.
1: One side comment and then we're moving on from mushrooms. But um no, I love them so much that and all of my kids don't like them. And both my husband and I enjoy mushrooms, but I am so stubborn that I just continue cooking with them. And what? I've been doing this for the past, let's say, 9 years. My oldest is 9, and now my oldest has started to eat them and has said, Oh my goodness, these are so delicious. They're incredible. And I mostly only do shiitake. Um, and my yo- my youngest actually always liked them, but um, he'll definitely eat them. And then my middle is just now starting to come around and say, Oh, wow, these aren't so bad after all. Uh, so I'm slowly converting my family to mushroom <laughs> mushrooms.
2: I love it. And of course, always the hiding strategy, right? Like I love the meatballs idea and with yeah. bigs and littles. And I also and blend it. them into pate which works really well. Um, yeah. And then along have- with liver. Yeah.
0: You're making a, okay. I was, gonna, I was wondering if you're making a vegetarian one or, but you're making it with liver and mushrooms.
1: That's I mean, a great they, idea. Yeah. They yes. give an umami flavor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's really smart.
2: Yeah. And I have a lot of mushroom recipes in my book too, including different kinds of dried medicinal mushrooms. You could add into a stock.
0: Excellent. Super cool idea. Okay. Um, since we need to move on from mushrooms, (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, okay. Can we talk a little about, um, well, okay. We're going to, I would really like it if you would explain probably briefly, what is herbalism and, um, like herbal healing? What are, what does that mean? Great question. Because I- it's it's not sorry, it's not just that you're like eating extra parsley, right? Like this is you're not just using culinary herbs, right? Can I just say though, at one point I was mind blown, and this was not that long ago, it was maybe four years ago or something, because I saw a you know list of top um, nutrients foods, and it was like organ meats and then culinary herbs. And then all the other foods that you could possibly eat. I was like, "Whoa, you don't like you don't think of in the in American culture, you don't think of herbs and um, things like that as being m- nutrient rich. You think of them as being flavor adders, right?
2: Absolutely, and it's actually so, quite the opposite. Um, yeah,
0: that's amazing.
2: Yeah, so kitchen medicine is very real, right? And culinary herbs are a huge part of that preventative care and resilience that we've been talking about. Um, And herbalism really connects so much with ancestral eating. Essentially, we're tracing back our roots, right? Looking back at our ancestors and reflecting on what were the foods that were growing wild on the lands of our ancestors when they were alive and thriving, right? Pre colonialism, pre industrialization. And if you're really interested in this, you can read a great book by Dan Saladino called Eating to Extinction. Um, and it's a wonderful reflection. I have a map of food crops and their origins in my book, and it's absolutely Googleable. Super fascinating to think about um, as those foods and those herbs are literally you know, predetermined by our DNA to be most digestible and supportive for us. Um, so with herbalism, you know- Wait, can I, let me, let me
0: in, interject a question really quickly. So you, if we're, cause I've thought about this so much. If you are looking back towards your ancestors, right? And where your ancestors came from, what do you have to say to somebody who's got a bajillion different things, you know? Yeah. Cause I for sure am not, a hundred percent, anything I've got like all sorts of different, um, bloodlines coming into this and people from all over the place. Um, and even people from, you know, different parts of the U S that would have had very different food, um, available to them. So what, what is the answer to these people who have all these different bloodlines?
2: Absolutely, which is so common, right? This is the reality of our world. And I think it's about resonance. So even without genetic data, something like 23andMe, right? Or even without enterotyping, figuring out your gut type, there are so many intuitive ways to say, okay, you know, I'm from these 20 different places. Let's look at the map of the food crops see which ones have the most kind of repetition and crossover, and then experiment with those, eat those, let my body tell me, um, oh, you may have a Polish grandfather, and I actually don't love digesting that sausage, um, and that's okay, right? And then perhaps leaning into another pathway where there was a lot of repetition or crossover experimenting with taking that food in and listening, right? Mm -hmm. There's always going to be a resonance with certain strains and lines from within our heritage. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful way to cultivate our intuition and our connection with the ancestors that are perhaps, you know, having the strongest influence in our bodies. Um, So I think that's, that's a fun and playful way to explore and listen. And I think truly the same is very real for plants, right? So with herbalism, every traditional group of people has a herbal practice and um, my feeling, not only from the way I grew up, but also from studying Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, macrobiotics, is that working with plants as medicine truly is a way of life, right? Again, it's not like, take the thing when you get sick. It's like, this is what we have woven in to our day-to-day. And yes, there's a ton of nutrient density in those culinary herbs, right? I used garlic as an example But the leaf and flower herbs as well have a ton of phytonutrients, right? Because in some ways it's a little more stressful for them to grow because they're small and mighty. Um, So they have to work a little bit harder and they just have a higher concentration of plant nutrients in their systems. And we, you know, in European herbalism, certainly combine something like thyme that would be considered culinary um, with something like, you know, chamomile or echinacea that might be considered more, you know, just medicinal, right? Um, And many other countries and many other traditions do the same thing. So I think herbalism really is, building a relationship with the plants, and first weaving them into our cooking, and then weaving them into something that we might make my kids call them potions, right? That are more Love like that. a medicinal herbal extract, which is a tincture, or a syrup, right? With beautiful...
0: Anything that we can make sound more Harry Potter in my house, the more likely my kids are to make it, so they're... <laughs>
1: Definitely. <laughs> Wait, since you mentioned your kids, out of curiosity, what are some of your potions that you like to make with them or that they enjoy consuming?
0: Absolutely. And, and tell us how old they are, please. Yeah.
2: So um, our kiddos are three and seven, um, which is unbelievable. And they love um, certainly harvesting from – the garden and making potions with what we have growing. Um, And they love, you know, when they get to use a mallet and beat on the roots um, of like echinacea for lymphatic circulation or elecampane as like a bronchial expectorant. Um, They love just, you know, wailing on those things (laughs) so we can break them apart and tincture them. Um, And we, for the kids make tinctures with vegetable glycerin, um, which is kind of made out of the fibrous parts of certain plants. And it's sweet, right? I don't want to give my kids alcohol. Um, You know, I'll give them apple cider vinegar for sure, like an elderberry syrup. But the vegetable glycerin is great because it tastes super yummy. Um, It's good at extracting the phytonutrients from plants as long as you heat them up together. That's kind of what makes vegetable glycerin different from alcohol. Um, and it's, yeah, it's got this kind of fun quality. So we often make um, a lung potion, right? Just because of all of the coughs and sniffles. Um, and sometimes, you know, as temperatures are changing too, with a lot of movement, it can feel a little harder to breathe the colder air. So we like to include herbs like mullen and plantain, um, cherry bark, and licorice, um, sometimes ginger, and we create a formula, essentially, right? Um, And it's also lovely to make those medicines in single form. Our other biggest potion is a nervine tonic, right? It's a nervous system regulator. We often take it before going out, after coming home, before bed. um, And we use herbs like Chamomile, lemon balm, passion flower. Um, so, this is like a calming thing?
0: Yes. Right? Are yeah. those calming? Or, yeah.
2: Nervous system regulators. Um, okay. We are also um, bitter and digestive chamomile, antiviral, lemon balm, mm-hmm. um, and circulatory, supportive to circulation, passion flower. And that's the amazing thing about herbal actions, right, is that herbs have all these different actions similar to foods, right? They're all playing overlapping roles, let's say, which is wonderful.
1: For, for the lung one that you were mentioning, is that one that you just start taking at a certain time of year and you just take a little bit daily, or how, do, how would that work?
2: Yes, that one I consider tonic for sure, um, and just soothing and strengthening to the lungs, right? Um, if my kiddo had, you know, a mucusy cough, that's when I would give them Ella as an expectorant to get that up and out of their system.
0: Okay, so can you go over, um, like, what is the what are what are these terms that we're using? We're using tincture, we're using tonic, we're using. I don't know, what are the other options? Salve, and um, that might be one people already know. But, you know, for the most part, these are not words that we're using, you know, we're not familiar with these words, so.
2: Yes, so tonic, um, as we were saying, is something that is toning our system, attuning our system, supporting us in the long-term, right? Go ahead and take a tonic, potion, for as long as you want. So like the Nervian tonic I just talked about, the lung tonic I just talked about, you could really take those throughout the year. I think it's always good to take a break from things, even good things Mm -hmm. once in a while Um, and no harm, right? Whereas something that is considered more um, therapeutic as like an intervention during illness is just something that we would take like the elecampane for a period of time, trying to get mucus up and out of the lungs. Um, And then, you know, a tincture really at its foundation is what we call in herbalism, a medicinal herbal extract, right? So it's extracting all of the active constituents, all of the components that support us and help us interact with that plant in another substance, It could be alcohol. It could be vegetable glycerin. Um, Some traditions extract in red wine. Some extract in brandy. All different solvents to pull out those plants' nutrients and put them into that liquid in concentrated form, right, in a higher concentration dose. Because it's hard to just, like, gnaw on leaves and roots and... (laughs) You can put those in your house, of course. You can chop them up and put them in your cooking, of course. And sometimes you just want a heftier dose.
0: Okay. So these things we're taking, um, like, you're you're drinking them or you're eating them or you're
1: um, – Maybe using a dropper would be my guess or I don't know.
0: Well, that, Yeah, that's what I'm wondering because I will be totally honest. Tonic means, like, something that you mix with gin to me. So – If we're, (laughs) so, so is it like something that you would put in a little glass and just drink it or, um,
2: so I think I love that question actually. Treat me
0: like an idiot so (laughs) I can,
2: (laughs) I mean, yes, you know, tinctures, if you look for them in the store, right. There's some wonderful companies like Herb Farm out of Oregon, Wish Garden out of Colorado, that make these little one ounce bottles with a little dropper that you can squeeze and it'll suck up some of the tincture into the glass vial, little glass vial, and then you can kind of shoot it into your mouth or put it in. Okay, like- I've seen this. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's yes. kind of a, a form of tincture that's out there in the world. Um, and sort of the way I grew up in my philosophy is that actually... You might need a little more than that. Like if someone is sick, I'll say, you know, go out and get a one ounce bottle of an immune tincture and make sure that in 24 hours, that thing is gone. It's done. Right. So you actually are creating a cocktail, like you're saying, Corey, right? You actually are making like a gin and tonic situation (laughs) for your health. And in our house, we call these concoctions. And so I'll pour, you know, just a couple of different tonic herbs and maybe some reishi glycerite um, into these little Moroccan tea glasses that my kids love. And then we have our lovely local raw milk. And we just put a splash of milk on top of the herbs. And then they just shoot it back. Um, and then nice. they slam their glass down on the counter and they're like, more <laughs> milk. <laughs> I love this. More milk. And they're like, okay, now I'm good. This Um. is
1: such a good idea because I, so I, I have a few different brands of herbal tinctures. One from a brand called earthly. Oh yeah. Um, Another from. That's the
0: only one I have
1: too. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. And then some from mountain rose, mountain valley. Mountain rose herbs. Herbs. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the name, the full name, but I This is so funny that you mentioned is Astragalus. That, I say Astragalus. Oh man, I was trying to get my three year old to take it and it was not going very well. And it never occurred to me that I could put it into milk.
2: Yes, um, milk. Milk is the way.
1: Oh, this is fascinating. Okay.
2: Yes, um, absolutely. And such a good nutrient dense food, right? To combine with those herbs. So I think that once you start, once anyone starts getting into using herbal medicine, they start to realize the benefit and um, the value of making their own tinctures, right? Mm -hmm. For the price of that one ounce bottle, and again, I am not putting down all of those wonderful herb companies, and I love to support them. And realistically, when you start to realize how much of that medicinal herbal extract you actually want to take not only tonically, but also therapeutically when you're sick, you're like, I'm going to spend like $75 just getting these tinctures. Whereas, you know, you could go to a place like Mountain Rose Herbs online, buy the bulk herbs, um, get some vegetable glycerin from them, or get some vodka at the liquor store and make a quart jar of your potion, your concoction, your formula, you know, for the same price as one or two ounces at the store.
1: Mm, That's such a good idea. So, okay. I think we're going to have to wrap up and I've, we've come to the decision, Corey and I telepathically that we're going to have to have you back on. (laughs) Um, So, but before we leave, I want to know if you can tell listeners, what are some herbs that they could either a grow in their garden that they can use medicinally or be maybe purchase from some of these companies so they could make their own tinctures and tonics. What would be your like top five?
0: I'm really glad that we're telepathically connected because that is the one thing I really wanted you to ask. So
1: Yeah, I know. I know, <laughs> right? I'm telling
0: you.
2: Perfect. So again, this does to some extent depend on where you live and which climate zone you live in. However, lemon balm um, Melissa officinalis is a great example of a herb that is strong, mighty, perennial, yet gentle. Great for bigs and littles. Um, You can just plant it, let it go. Don't worry about it. Let it do its thing. It's great in a sun tea. It's great as tea. It's great as a tonic, right? Helps settle the stomach. So it's digestive and also a nervine, right? So it's acting on the enteric nervous system um, and antiviral. So great for a cold, one of my top herbs for a cold. Um, And then peppermint. Watch out because it's also strong and mighty. Perennial grows most. Take over. (laughs) Take over. So plant somewhere where it can roam free. That's what it wants to do. It wants to give its medicine to the people. Um, and so many traditional cultures have peppermint in their compendium. Um, lemon balm's a little more warming, peppermint's a little more cooling. So think about that, depending on what's going on, right. With like an aggravated digestive system and lots of like burping and belching or like upper GI heat. You know, the peppermint can be great and soothing, um, also digestive, also nervine, supportive to the nervous system. Um, And then plantain, a herb that likely you have as a weed in your yard is so incredible in terms of drawing out what is not so helpful in the system. And that could have to do topically with a skin rash or a skin eruption. It could have to do internally with liver toxicity or even lung um, mucus, right? or mucus in other parts of the respiratory system, the nose and the ears. Um, It's wonderful at, in a gentle but strong way, drawing things out. So look at pictures of plantain. You probably already have plantain growing around. and then my other one is, um, and I'm li- limiting myself big time, but um, of course garlic, which I mentioned, which is a great crossover culinary medicinal, um, great in firesider, and thyme. Okay. Um, thyme, again, strong, mighty, perennial, comes back pretty much everywhere. It's an incredible culinary um, and I think truly traditionally included in so many dishes because it's antimicrobial, antibacterial, it'll preserve food, right? Oregano is very similar to um, in that category. So it helps to keep food from spoiling. Um, it also helps with cold and flu prevention. And it also helps in those moments of actively being sick um, with the lungs, with decongestion, um, And makes a really nice combo with lemon balm and garlic when you're not feeling well.
0: That's excellent. Thank you so much. Um, Can you tell people about your book and about where to find you and connect with you?
2: Yes. Um, The name of my business is Harmonized Living. I'm easy to find on the interwebs. And my book is called The Culinary Pharmacy. It's available anywhere. Books are sold. Sold. And um, it's, it's going to be a surprise to you. Um, the title says something about the book, and there's so much more in there about my own story, um, about my various journeys with illness and healing, about all these different cultural traditions and traditional food ways, um, traditional medicine ways, and how you can sort of bring those into your own life. Um, So, check it out.
1: That sounds really interesting. I'm I'm intrigued for sure. And I I know for a fact that you're gonna have to come on and continue talking.
2: Amazing! I would love that. So mushrooms. Yeah, definitely. I mean,
1: we didn't even touch on Michael Pollan. Okay, so.
2: Oh my! Oh. (laughs) Oh,
0: Okay.
1: I know, right? Lisa, thank you so much. And actually, because we also didn't talk about making pasta and things like that. I I would love to hear more about how can someone who wants to start making their own pasta, what are some really easy pastas that they can start with?
0: Wait, Christine, have you never made pasta?
1: I've only made it once.
2: It's so easy. It's so
1: easy. And, and so
2: fun with kids. oh my goodness. And you don't need a mm. pasta machine. You just okay. need eggs, flour, olive oil, salt and a big cutting board and a rolling pin.
0: It's so good. I love homemade pasta.
2: And it's such a okay. different quality and feel. And again, it's like when you know you have the high quality ingredients, you can make something that's so incredibly nutrient dense. And then the time you might spend making it is saved in the fact that it only takes three to four minutes to cook. <laughs> right?
1: You're yeah. selling it. Okay. It. <laughs>
2: Try it.
1: Thank you I so much, Lisa. It's really appreciate pleasure.
2: it. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. All right, everybody. Um, go grab yourself a copy of Lisa's book. It's called, what is it called one more time? The, the Culinary Pharmacy. 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 Right. Okay. So go grab that. Um,
1: and don't forget to plant lemon balm, mint, thyme, oregano, plantain, which is probably a weed. And that was it.
0: Garlic, garlic, garlic. have to have a bit more of a garden to do garlic, but you can do it anyway. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much. Everybody have a good day, night, wherever you're listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at nourishthelittles Littles and online at nourishthelittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at ForNutrient Sake and online at ForNutrientsake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas.
1: expressed in this episode are those of the guests. They do not reflect Corey and eyes and Modern Ancestral Mama's personal views and opinions. We do not take responsibility for any ideas expressed during the podcast interview.
0: The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.